Good morning, everybody. Um, I put the link to the Sikha in the chat box. And if you want to grab a Chumash, because it's a Rashi Sikha, um, you could use that. And we'll start in just about a minute. Gemar Chasima Tova to everyone. Mazel Tov again. It's really special. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sorry about that. <laughs> Got home late last night. Ricky, say again, we couldn't hear. Uh, you got home late last night? Yeah, it was, yes, very late. But Baruch Hashem, we're all, we're all functioning. <laughs> Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. It's 10 a.m. on Zion Tishrei. And uh, we're going to begin right away. And we're in for uh, a little treat. Like kind of, I don't know if this is heretical to say, but it's kind of fun this morning, the Sicha. It's a Rashi Sicha, uh, not too terribly complex, and just kind of like, a, I don't know, like a puzzle. Um, before I begin, I just want to um, dedicate this class uh, to the occasion of Rabbi Yaakov Rauen having received his smicha yesterday, Mazel Tov to Rabbi Yaakov Rauen and his entire family, and may this bring all kinds of brachos with it. Um, the um, link is in the chat, and I'm going to just put it one more time. Uh, it's Sicha Beis in Chelek Yotes on Parshas Ha'azinu. If you're able to access a Chomish quickly, um, you could look at the verse, at the Pasuk, and Rashi's commentary on it. And then we will look at, of course, the Rebbe's questions. At the end of Parshas Ha'azinu, Ksiv, the Torah tells us, and uh, the Pasuk is by Yidaber Hashem Moshe Be'etzem Hayom Hazel Leimor. Hashem spoke to Moshe in the middle or at the very height of that day, saying. And uh, Rashi's commentary is, is quite verbose here. It's quite long. Um, I'll read it in its entirety. Rashi. Rashi stops on the words, Vaidaber Hashem El Moshe Be'etzem Hayom. It's quite a long, deeper Hamaskil, quite a long, I guess you could say, I don't know, caption. And Rashi says, There are three places in the Torah where the Torah uses this exact term, in the middle of this day or at the very height of that day. Once, it says this concerning Noach, it says, At the height of this day, Noach came, Noach entered the Teva, the uh, vessel, the ark, in the face of the oncoming flood, when the light of day was in full view. And why was it at that time? 
Since his contemporaries, the people that lived at that time, said, this way or that way, we will not permit him to enter the ark. If we sense, if we sense that he's leaving to go into the ark, we will not permit him to go into the ark. The law owed, and that's not all, but furthermore, Ella Anunotlim Kashilin Vikardumos. We will take sledgehammers and axes. Umivakin Esateva, and we will smash or destroy the ark, the Teva. Amar Kadishbarhu, the Holy One, blessed be he said, Hareni Machniso Bachati Hayom. I will actually bring Noach into the Teva in middle of the day. Uh, he's not going to slink into the Teva under the cover of darkness. And anybody who feels they have the power to obstruct, to impede his entrance into the Teva, let him come and do so. That's the first time that the words are used in the Torah. Uh, one second, let me just put the link in one more time into the chat group, in the chat box. Okay, um, that's one. Bin Mitzrayim. The next time that these words appear is in concerning the story of Mitzrayim, where it says, "Be'etem hayom Hashem," that it was at the very height of that day, or in the middle of the day, that Hashem took them out of Egypt. Why? Mitzrayim because the Egyptians said, Either way. By hook or by crook, basically, as we would say today, if we get a sense that the Jews are planning to leave Egypt, we will not permit them to go. The law owed, and not only that, but furthermore, Ella Anu Notlin Siafos we will access swords and other weaponry, and we'll kill them. We will not allow them to leave Egypt. So God said, you know what? If you think you can stop them, I am going to, again, deliver them. Smack dab in the middle of the day. And if anybody thinks that they're powerful enough to stop the exodus, let them come and try to do so. And now Rashi comes to our Pasuk here and says, Afkan And here too, concerning Moshe's death, Ne'emar, it says these exact words. At the very height of this day. Why? Because the Jews said, either way, by hook or by crook, no matter what happens, if we get a sense that he's leaving, we will not let him go. We cannot let him go. This is the man who took us out of Egypt. He split the sea for us. And he brought down the manna. And he swept the quail over to us. And he brought up the wellspring for us. And he gave us the Torah. So we are not going to let him leave us. So in, in, uh, in response, Hashem said, Hareini machniso, I will bring him 
to me. I will bring him to me. I will gather him up. And it will be also in the middle of the day and nobody will be able to impede this. So that's Rashi. And uh, like we said already, it's quite a lengthy Rashi. I always think about like the Rashi's I learned in elementary school, like this is a very easy Rashi for a teacher to teach. It has symmetry. It's it, it, it's easy. And you're like, okay, okay, great, fine. Uh, but of course, the Rebbe never gives us a pass like that. So we've essentially read the entire Rashi. So we uh, can go right to um, the left side if you're if you're reading from the same uh, you know construction that I have on here in the chat uh, box. Uh, so it's the left side of the first page of the Sicha. And the Rebbe says, and what is, the, what is the reason in general that Rashi feels compelled to comment at all on this Rashi? Move on bepashtos. It's understood simply. L'chora, because it would seem, tevot elu miutaroten. These words would seem to be extraneous, extra, superfluous. Sheri nemar kfar betchilas ha'inin parshas vayilach. Because this is really a continuation of previous Parsha, we know that this is the last day of Moshe's life. We know that this is his swan song, as it were. And in Parsha's Vayelach, it says, Ben shana nochi hayom. Moshe says, I'm 120 years old today. Moshe. And we know that Moshe passed on this day. And so it's understood. So, so we have the lay of the land. We know the chronology. Of course, it has to be in the middle of that day because he's already started doing things uh, in, you know, in the morning of that day. And this is all happening in a continuum. And if what, what is novel is that Rashi or the Torah is telling us that it's Be'etzem, is smack dab or at the height of that day, as opposed to maybe three o'clock in the afternoon or 1130 in the morning. In other words, then what really is the difference? So the Lachain and therefore Rashi feels compelled to comment on the word really Be'etzem. The Pasuk is coming to allude that Bnei Yisrael really did not want to allow Moshe to leave this world. And so in answer to this, to this sentiment that they said, we can't let Moshe leave us, Hashem said, he has to leave you and it's going to be in your presence and it's not going to be a secret and this is not going to be some type of SWAT um, operation. It's going to happen right in front of your eyes and, and you're not going to be able to stop it. We have to understand and here begin the Rebbe's questions. Understandable, you're talking about the contemporaries of Noah, because we know how you They were the kind of demographic who might actually think that they could prevent Noah from entering the Teva. 
They weren't especially God-fearing. They weren't especially spiritually evolved. And of course, the Egyptians. They could have deluded themselves into thinking that they could actually impede the process of Exodus. Why? Because they were the majority. And so they should be able to stop the Jews. As much as the Jews proliferated, the, the Egyptians were still the, the majority. But how is it possible for the Jews to even entertain the notion that they can actually prevent Moshe's passing? This is not something that, you know, life and death, that's not in our hands. So why would they think they could do this? That's question number one. Question number two, Bayes. Why does Rashi feel compelled to give us this whole exposition on these words, where they appear and what was going on? And why bring, um, why in such elongated fashion? It would seem it would seem that what he should do here is just explain the simplest understanding of the verse. Just explain this verse. That Bnei Yisrael actually wanted to prevent Moshe's death. And that's why God said, you can't do this. And to teach you that you can't do this, it's going to happen at a time of day where it's in full sight of everybody, you're all out of full force, and you won't be able to stop it. And especially because that is actually the modality that, that Rashi uses in Parshat Noach. In Parshat Noach, on the words Sham over there, Piresh, the pasuk comes to teach you. The verse comes to teach you, Shahayu Benedoro, that that his that the people of his generation, his contemporaries, thought that they could stop him from going into the into the teva, into the um, ark. Amar Kadosh Baruch Hu, Ani Machniso Le'Ene Kulam V'Chulam. And so God said, I'm going to bring him into the teva. You're not going to be able to stop it. It's going to be in, in in plain sight of you, but you won't be able to stop it. Over there in Parshat Noach, Rashi lo hiskir dugmaot mimakom acher. He does not cite other examples in the Torah where these same words will appear. Shechein who appears to Betzamayamazeh. Even though there are going to be two other examples, Rashi is silent on the other two examples in Parshat Noach. V'yeter mizu, and even more. Halo hadvarim kal v'chomer. It would seem that it should be the opposite how much more so he should have done it in the first instance in Noah. If in the first instance where we find these words, Rashi did not feel compelled to give us other examples or proofs of what this exact terminology might indicate, so how much more so, he shouldn't have to do this the third time this term appears in the Torah. And even more. The parashat bo lo perish rashi mu'uma ala katu be'etzim hayom azeh hotzi Hashem. In the second instance, in parashat bo, 
Rashi says nothing on these exact words, it would seem that simply speaking, the reason that Rashi does not feel compelled to comment at all is because he relies on he relies on what he said in Parsha Noach, the Imkain. So if in the second instance, he's relying on the first, and in the first instance, Rashi did not feel compelled to bring any other information of other instances in which this term would appear in the Torah, Madua Khan Biparsha Seinu, why in our Parsha here, why does he feel compelled to bring the intention of this particular verse in, these words in the middle of the day, and he brings examples and he brings parallels and he brings proofs and he does this all in very elongated fashion. And so when you consider this, you're kind of forced to conclude that the verse in our parsha over here, what Rashi said earlier in Noah that was good enough to hold us over in Bo doesn't actually jibe so well with the larger context. Ella. However, but because the words in the two previous instances meant that God is kind of taking up the challenge and saying, I'll show you. So Rashi is kind of telling us that we have to accept that this is what it means here, because this is the third time these, this exact terminology is being used. In the previous two instances, it meant something very specific. And so although we might kind of resist this particular understanding in this context, and we'll explain why Rashi's saying, but this is the way it works in the Torah. That if you have the same term again and again and again, it has a certain connotation. And because of this initial resistance and Rashi pushing back and saying, no, 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 this is exactly how it works here too. Rashi is very, particular, he's very punctilious with the words he uses here. After he brings the parallels and the examples of how this exact verbiage is used with Noah, in the story of Noah and the story of the Exodus from Mitzrayim, Rashi says the words Afkan, also here. And these are words, they do not appear in the source from which Rashi seems to be citing, which is the Sifri. This is Rashi's own inclusion. Even though the Sifri is Makor Perish Rashi, is the source of his commentary here. Shasham Nakat Kidavitziat Mitzrayim. Over there it says, Over there the Sifri says, and why does it say these words here? But Rashi doesn't use those words. He says instead, Afkan, in like fashion here. By saying in like fashion, Afkan, Rashi is underscoring 
Rashi is underscoring that after we understand what these words mean in the story of Noah and in the story of the leaf taking from Mitzrayim, the Exodus, we need to understand that Afkan also here, the words mean the same thing. However, there are good reasons to doubt why it would mean this here. In Si'if Beis, we're going into the second part of the Sicha, page three. Milvat Hanal, quite apart from what we've said above, the two questions we've raised, Yesh Lidayek Bekama Pratim Belashon Rashi. We have to also look carefully at a few of the details of Rashi's commentary. Aleph. When it came to the story of Noah and the story of the Exodus, Rashi does not explain why the contemporaries of Noah or why the Egyptians said, we're not going to let this happen. Because it's self-understood. But here, when it comes to Moshe's departure, Rashi feels compelled to list the many favors, the many uh, wonderful things that Moshe did for the Jews. And because of these great favors, the Jews said, we are not going to let him leave. I mean, that would be silly. He, he's a national treasure. So the first question is, why is it not self-understood that the Jews would not want Moshe to die? Simple. There is leaders. As much as they prove that they love to beat up on him, they, they, they weren't that dumb. They appreciated all the things he had done for them. They loved him. And why does Rashi feel compelled to list, again, using so many words. Rashi is very parsimonious with his words. Why does he feel compelled to do this? We, we could understand it ourselves why B'nai Israel would not want Moshe to die. Beis. Lama lo histapek Rashi b'mesh amru b'nai dor shalnof amatrim enanumanichim chulu kivanidun didan. Why in the previous instances, when it came to the story of Noah, and it came to the story of the Exodus from Egypt, why did Rashi not feel it was sufficient to simply say, we're not going to let this happen, like he does here? Elah Hosif, no, he feels compelled to add. Legabe Noach, when it came to Noach, he feels compelled to add velo'od, and not only we're not going to let, we're going to take clubs or sledgehammers and axes, and we're going to split or destroy or smash the teva, the um, the ark. And when it came to the story of the Exodus, Rashi, again, does not suffice with saying, we're not going to let the Jews go, but more. We're going to source swords and other weaponry. And we're going to kill the Jews. 
this means. It means that in the story of Noah, it's not only that they're not going to allow him to enter the ark. In the story of Egypt, not only they're not going to allow the Jews to leave Mitzrayim, but they're going to completely obviate the possibility, the potential for Noah to enter the ark or the Jews to leave Egypt. That's question number two. Why does Rashi feel it necessary to add these additional details? Question number three. Why is, why is it necessary? What is the reason that in this addition that we have cited in question number two, Rashi doesn't just say they're going to take axes. I'm sorry, they're going to take clubs. He all sledgehammers. He says they're going to take axes. And when it came to Egypt, it says, they're going to take sword and they're going to take other types of weaponry. Again, Rashi is usually not very verbose. He doesn't usually spill extra ink. So what is going on here? Yes, it does make for a more colorful graphic Rashi. It, like I said, it's a great Rashi to teach to third grade, fifth grade, eighth grade. But, but, but the Rebbe is always looking to understand what are all of the lessons here? Why is it necessary? Dalit. Legabe noach when it came to Noah and Mitzrayim, Rashi brings the entire trajectory. Amar Kadosh Baruch Hu, God said, If anybody thinks they could stop me, they should come and try to impede the process. Masha'in came, but in contradistinction, in our case here, The only thing Rashi writes is, God said, I'm going to bring Noah in at the height of the day. And he continues, and he continues with just etc. There are many, many sikhas where the Rebbe looks at this word etc. When in this Rashi here, Rashi mentions what happens in Mitzrayim, and he feels compelled to repeat again everything he just told us about Noah, and he doesn't feel that we would get it on our own, then madua kan ramzu Then why in the third instance does he stop short and just say, etc.? Either way, Either he should have written, etc. in the latter two instances after he gave it to us the first time in Noah, or or for consistency's sake, he should have repeated the whole thing three times. Either do it once with two etc. or do it all three times completely. But two times with a third time etc.? That's not good for those of us who are anal. So what's Rashi trying to do here? Hey, then when Rashi begins to delineate the many 
wonderful things that Moshe facilitated for the Jews, we have to understand. Why does Rashi cite specifically these wonderful things Moshe did? He took us out of Egypt. He split the sea for us. He uh, brought down the man. He made the slav, the quail, sweep over to us. He brought up for us the uh, Be'er Shel Miriam, the, the uh, miraculous well, and gave us the Torah. If you look at the duration of the 40 years that the Jews were in the desert, Moshe did so many other favors for the Jews. For example, he sweetened the bitter waters in Mara. He um, led the war against Sichon Ba'og. Many others. But Rashi stopped short. In other words, again, for consistency's sake, if you're only going to cite one and then say, etc., got it. But you're going to cite six or seven, and then you don't cite the others. Vav, even more, the Eteramizu, even more. Bisifrikan, again, Rashi seems to be citing from the Sifri. And in the Sifri, Huva, this particular term is brought. Vasalanu nisim ugvorot. The Jews say, Moshe did for us miracles and spectacular wonders. And why does Rashi delete those words? And for additional explanation, although, again, Rashi seems to be citing from the Sifri, and we are now putting under the microscope through the Rebbe's lens, the exact terminology. But because we know that Rashi stated mandate is to explain the text in accordance with the Pshat, and especially because Rashi does not cite here, that he is importing his commentary from Sifri. We are forced to conclude that it's not a medrash. It's all pshat, which means that every single one of these details is necessary to understand the simple explanation of this puzzle. Pshuto shel mikra. And Zayin, if you look at Rashi's commentary, he is essentially addressing the words It's pretty clear. And if so, So why in the Dibrahamathil do the words Hashem El Moshe appear before the words Many, many times the Rebbe has underscored that the um, Dibor HaMatchil is not just a headline. It's not just to bring our attention to what Rashi is, is explaining. It's part of the explanation. So what are the superfluous, seemingly superfluous words doing in the 
headline, in the heading, in the Debra Matya. Okay, we're going to do a very quick recap. Going back to page one. Question number one. We could understand why the contemporaries of Noah or the Egyptians would want or could delude themselves into thinking that they can actually stop God from doing something. But the Jews, really, they think that they can stop Moshe from, from leaving this world. Question number two, why does Rashi feel compelled to bring the whole lengthy explanation about the other places where it says the words, especially if in the first instance, in Parsha Noach, he did not feel compelled to tell us that there are two other places in the Torah where the same terminology is used and will mean the same thing. In the second instance, he doesn't say anything at all because he has been relying on what he already told us in Parsha Noach. So how much more so it would seem that he shouldn't say anything in the third instance. However, the Rebbe says, we are forced to, to understand that Rashi has to do this because in contradistinction to Parshat Noach and Parshat Bo, here in the context, it really doesn't make sense that they would think that they could stop Moshe from passing. This is why Rashi has to bolster his thesis by bringing two previous sources and uses the words Afkan also here. In this, he digresses from the original terminology of the Sifri. In addition to this, Rebbe asks six additional, is it six or seven? Seven additional questions. One, regarding Noah and the Mitzrayim, Rashi does not cite why they wanted to stop what they wanted to stop, because it's kind of obvious. Why is it not obvious here that the Jews would not want Moshe to die? That's number one. Number two. Why does Rashi not suffice with just saying that the, the contemporaries of Noah said such and such, the Mitzrayim, the Egyptians said such and such, but he feels obligated to add that they said that they're going to take up clubs or sledgehammers and axes, and regarding the Egyptians, they're going to source swords and they're going to source other types of weaponry. That seems like, again, interesting, but does, is it necessary? Third question, why is it necessary to include the subsidiary details? Not just tell us generally that they're going to take up, you know, axes, but no, sledgehammers and axes. And in the case of the Mitzrayim, swords and other types of weaponry. What is the imperative for that? Fourth question. Regarding Noah and Mitzrayim, Rashi brings the entire story. So when God saw what they were planning to do, Hashem said, ha, you think you can stop me? I'm going to do this in the middle of the day in front of your eyes. So he bring in our Rashi here. He brings this story twice, the entire storyline. But in the third instance, he stops short of the end and he says, v'chulei. Either bring it once and say b'chule twice, or bring it all three times. Fifth question. Enlisting all of the favors that Moshe Rabbeinu did for the Jews, 
Why these? Either survey or catalog all of the favors, or give us one or two and say v'chulei. Six, even more so in the Sifri, the Sifri says, and he did for us miracles and wonders. Rashi does not include those words. And then the Rebbe inserts in the brackets, we have to understand that all of this is very, very specific and instructive because we have to be reminded of the fact that Rashi has said about himself, so every single one of these details has to be seminal to understanding the Pshutta Shal Mikra. And finally, why such a long Dibor HaMatchel, it seems superfluous to cite all the words that come before Be'etzem Hayom when Rashi seems to be clearly focusing on the words Be'etzem Hayom at the height of this day. Gimel, we're on page four, the third part of the Sicha, and now the Rebbe is going in one elegant fell swoop, it really explain all the details. There's a very stark and simple difference between what happened with Noah and Mitzrayim and what's happening here with Moshe. The contemporaries of Noah and the Egyptians uh, were evil persons. They had no problem doing anything that was contrary, that contravened God's will. So it's clear why they would want to prevent Noah from going into the ark, prevent the Jews from leaving. This is all in contradistinction to God's will. But in this case, it's not understood. How is it possible to say that the Jews wanted to rebel against God and to do the opposite of his will? And, and let's also remember, we're not talking about the generation of the desert. We find many times that they did things that were contrary to God's will. We're talking about the generation that went into Eretz Yisrael. About them, Hashem says, This is a generation that is attached, that cleaves onto God, your God. And it's really hard to explain that they would defy God's will when it came to the passing of Moshe Rabbeinu. And therefore, if not for the proof, if not for Rashi taking pains to actually prove to us based on the fact that these exact words appear twice before in the Torah and they have a certain connotation, if not for this, we wouldn't understand, we wouldn't embrace this understanding. For this reason, we would not have explained the words here in this way. 
that divrei hakatuv himana le'enu manichim. That these words that Hashem says be'etzam hayomazah are a response to the Jews saying we're not going to allow this. We would never think to go there in our minds that these Jews that they could stop Hashem's will. It doesn't jibe with who they were. V'lochein. Oh, I'm sorry. But because Rashi takes pains to tell us that there are three places in the Torah that says, But when Rashi says there are three places in the Torah where it says these words, and in the two previous places, in the two other places, this is what it means. And there's no question that this is what it means, then it proves that the words over here mean the same thing. Now we have to, how about we have to understand. Dalit. Why would the Jews even entertain such a notion <laughs> that they could actually stop the death of Moshe? And so Rashi addresses this question too with his exact words, Afkan, also here. With this he underscores, that the idea that we will not allow this, that what they meant by we're not going to allow this, applies equally in all three Okay, so now follow carefully. What the Rebbe says is that what the contemporaries of Noah wanted to do and what the Egyptians wanted to do was to prevent movement from one place to another. In the case of Noah, it was Knisat Noah. It was Noah's entrance into the Teva. In the case of the Egyptians, it's Yitziat Yisrael. It's the leave taking of the Jews from the borders of Egypt. The same thing is true here. Their desire was to obviate the possibility of Moshe moving from one place to another. Hainu, meaning Aliyat Moshe Lahar. They wanted to stop Moshe from alighting the mountain. The Chevon Shamar Kadesh because God had said, Umeit Bahar, that Moshe is going to die on the mountain. Hare Miniatam, et Moshe Milalot Lahar, Tigrom Baderach Mamela, Shetimna Ptirat Moshe. So when they try to stop Moshe from alighting onto the mountain, they hope that this will cause that Moshe will not be able to pass because the Pasuk has specifically said he will pass from the mountain. Hey, from this we understand, now we'll understand the difference between this case and the previous two cases and why Rashi stops with saying, we're not going to allow this. And in the other two cases, in the other two cases, Rashi feels compelled to add 
not only we're going to stop, but we're going to get out our sledgehammers and our axes and our swords and our weaponry. Because because in the two previous cases, the contemporaries of Noah and the Egyptians, they were evil people. Because in the two previous examples, we're talking not about God-fearing people. And therefore, they didn't actually know with clarity and they weren't sure that God's every word and God's every command has to take place exactly the way it's foretold. Therefore, it wasn't enough for them to say, we're going to blockade entrance or we're going to blockade exit. They felt like they were going to have to be on the watch to prevent this from happening, maybe for many days, maybe even for many weeks. Yomam Valila, day and night. That Noah shouldn't go into the Teva, that the Jews shouldn't leave Egypt. They didn't actually believe that God said, the, you know, this is going to happen exactly this time. Therefore, they felt compelled to engage in some type of overture that would completely obviate the possibility for Noah to go into the Teva and for the Jews to leave. They felt, we have to destroy the Teva. We have to kill the Jews. Masha Enkin, a contradistinction in our case here, here we're talking about Jews that are righteous. They believed and they knew with a simplicity that God's decree that led Moshe to say, today, my days have been filled. Today I will die, was exact. And therefore they thought, that if Moshe will not be on the mountain on this exact day, which was slated to be the day of his death, the decree will be voided. And this is not a new idea that an edict can be voided. Rashi actually just cited this just above. That after Moshe led the conquest of Sichon and Og, Savar Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe actually thought that, um, that God's oath about his not being able to go into Eretz Yisrael was obviated. That's why it was enough. They said, we're just not going to let him go up on the mountain. On this day. And they felt with this, they can um, annul the decree of Moshe's death. So now to answer the question of why does Rashi feel obligated to cite both the axes 
and the sledgehammers, the swords and the weaponry. And he explains like this. Legabe Noach, in the story of Noach, when they apprehended that God desired to save Noah from the flood through bringing him into the ark, so they started to think, if they destroy the vessel, that will be the, um, <clears throat> the saving, the, 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 the protective place for Noah, then God won't be able to bring the Mabel because God wants to save Noah. If they break the submarine, if they break the Teva, God's not going to be able to bring the Mabel. And when they understood, they thought this through, they understood it's a game of chess, right? So they have to have a strategy. So when Noah's going to realize that they're going to break the Teva, Noah's going to try to stop them. So they have to find a strategy for both breaking the Teva, but keeping Noah alive at the same time. They can't kill him. They can't take him out. Because if they kill Noah, then there'll be no obstruction to God bringing the Mabel because Noah will already be dead. God doesn't have to protect anything. So Rashi said they brought not only axes or sledgehammers with, with which they hoped and sought to destroy the, the Teva, but they also brought axes um, to kind of keep Noah at bay, but not kill him. And Rebbe brings down the Kfarhevi Rashi, the Parsha Shoftim. Rashi already explained in Parsha Shoftim, Gabe Sari Tzvaot, about the generals, Shahayu Kishilin Shalbarzel Biyadehim, that they had the same kind of. Um, Axes, the same kind of implement. And Harashut et Shokav. And they had the permission to beat the thighs of people. But these are not actually implements that are lethal. It's about a deterrent, an impediment. It's something that would stop somebody. It would create like a, um, like a speed bump, but it wasn't lethal. So that's why they needed both. They needed something with which they would keep Noah at bay. They have to keep him alive, but they have to keep him contained so he doesn't stop them. And they have to, at the same time, break the ark. And in this way, they will stymie God's plan. It's the same thought process that propelled the Mitzrayim. They knew that as soon as they start to kill the Jews, the Jews will, will take up war against them. 
Therefore, they arm themselves not only with swords, which are clay hariga, they are lethal implements, but they also armed themselves with other protective gear, with shields. And that's why Rashi has to mention both. But we still have a problem. It's still hard. Still and all. Okay, very nice. We really have a much better picture now of what's going on here and why Rashi has to say everything he said. But still, how is it possible that these Jews that are being described as they are tzaddikim, how did they want to engage in an overture to stop Moshe's death? At the end of the day, no matter how you cut the mustard, it's against Hashem's desire. So like, what are they doing here? And to understand this, to explain this, Rashi lists in quite lengthy fashion all the favors that Moshe did for them. Why is this important? Because in Parsha Tavo, Parsha's Kisavo, we just learned, that when Hashem blesses a Jew, uh, with agricultural pursuit, with, with a field, with fruit, a person is forbidden from, from spurning the source of goodness, and a person is obligated, a Jew is obligated to show gratitude, to bring bikurim, and to thank Hashem. And now we understand their thought process. Because Moshe did for them so many favors. So they have an obligation not to, to spurn the source of goodness. Therefore, they have to do everything they can to stop or prevent his death. Even though this would seem to go up against, to clash with Hashem's commandment that Moshe alight on Har Heivarim, Har Navo. And therefore, it wasn't enough for Rashi to just mention one great thing that Moshe did for the Jews and then just say, etc. He had to list and delineate all of the favors. Because in order to understand what the Jews felt, they owed Moshe. So as he lists and the list gets bigger of what he did for them, so in in consonance with how great was his uh, goodness to them, is the greatness of their debt mm-hmm. that they owe him. And this uh, kind of, um, it, this is matzik, this, uh, help me here, um, this not just explains, but ratifies in greater fashion. Ratifies. 
justifies, thank you so much, um, the, their, their, their overtures here. They, they put a lot of effort in stopping Moshe from going up on the mountain. Ches. Al pizem muvan. And so in accordance with this is understood, and now we answer one of the other questions. Why does Rashi cite only these? It's a, if we only would cite one thing and then say, etc. got it. Even if he cited three and said, et cetera. But he cites quite a list, but then he stops short of including everything that Moshe did. Why? Why not the other great things? So the Rebbe explains, if you're going to talk about all the favors that Moshe did over the entire period of time, because the Jews were not, generally speaking, people who were kafui tova, who did not appreciate the source of goodness, we have to, we have to, postulate that they had already expressed their thanks. And therefore he lists only those overarching favors that Moshe did for them that they are still benefiting from. Presently, right now, as Moshe needs to alight the mountain from which he will depart this world, they are still benefiting. They're the beneficiaries of this. And it is because of these great favors that are ongoing favors that shape the contours of their life that they feel obligated to show great appreciation to Moshe and do their part to keep him in this world. And don't ask the question of why Rashi lists also that he took us out of Egypt, he split the sea, he gave us the Torah. Yes, those things were done a long time ago, 40 years ago. They were done in the past. But these are favors, these are favors that continue to inform their every day. This is an ongoing favor. This is not just like a one-time thing. And this is something that actually impacts all Jews in all times. We already know this, that this is something that continues to impact us because earlier the Torah tells us that when your child will ask you about Yetziat Mitzrayim and the splitting of the sea, which is really the final act of Yetziat Mitzrayim, and Rashi says that when your son will ask you tomorrow, that tomorrow, perish Rashi, machor shahu acharzman, it's not talking about actually tomorrow. It's talking about all the tomorrows, lelo kol with no uh, statute of limitations. Va'amarta, and because it's something that impacts you, should say to your child, Va'otano hotzi misham, God took us out of Mitzrayim. Same thing about the giving the Torah. This was not just for that nation, for that generation. 
It's for all the Jews of all times. And now we're in a position to answer, I think this was the seventh question. And that's why Rashi doesn't cite this exact term from the Sifri that God did for us all these miracles and these wonders, the canal, as we asked earlier. And as we've explained, Rashi because Rashi only lists the favors from which the Jews are still benefiting on the day that Moshe alights on the mountain. It is because of this great benefit that they feel this tremendous obligation weighs on them to do what they can to keep Moshe here. Masha'in came in contradistinction, Nisi Mugvurot, the more kind of generic words, uh, miracles and wonders, Stam, generically, from which they benefited only in the past. But if you're still bothered, <clears throat> stick with us, so is the Rebbe. But it would seem, but this still doesn't explain it. But after all is said and done, God gave a very clear instruction, a light on this mountain. What are the Jews smoking? How did they think that, okay, yeah, they, they're filled with all this gratitude. They have an obligation to express gratitude, but really, you're going to stop Hashem's plan? And to explain this and to answer this question, and now the Rabbi is explaining why did Rashi put the words Hashem El Moshe in the Dibor Hamatra? I knew this means. Because with this, Rashi is explaining to us what the kind of, you could say, the halachic, the legal thought process was here. That Hashem said to Moshe, alei el not to the Jews. Hashem's command is to Moshe. And because they were not commanded by Hashem about this, and because of Moshe did not alight, it would be because he was forced. And we have a halachic construct of anus when a person is forced. For instance, we have about a woman who is raped. God forbid, nothing is done to her. She's anus. She, she was compelled. She was forced. Nimza. So then, if you look at it this way, they don't have a commandment, but by stopping Moshe, they would put him in a situation where he really had no choice. So then he has to be given a pass <laughs> because that's what you do with the anus, with somebody who's, who's forced. Nimza. So then you're left with sheyesh kanrak inishel grama. So what you have is this halachic construct when you do something indirectly. 
So what the Jews are doing is just a grama because they are indirectly not allowing Moshe to fulfill the commandment that he has. They don't have a commandment to help him to facilitate his death. And therefore they thought, So when they weighed the equation, they felt they do have an obligation. They do have an obligation to express gratitude. And that obligation, and so the indirect action of not allowing Moshe to go up on the mountain yields to the greater imperative to express gratitude. And now we understand, it's, it's beautifully understood why Rashi in this third instance doesn't go into the end of the story. If there's anybody here who thinks that they can stop me, let them come and stop me, etc. He just alludes to it by saying, etc. Because in our case, because here, the Jews were not interested in rebelling like in the other two cases against God. That was not their thought process. On the contrary, they wanted to observe, to fulfill, at least in accordance with their logic, the Torah's obligation, to not spurn the source of goodness that you're given. And therefore, Rashi would have written clearly, he would have written the same thing he wrote in the first two instances. Then it might have been reason and there might have been place to understand this. You might have erroneously thought that here too, the Jews were engaged in some type of rebellious activity. Some kind of rebellion. Of the Jews, the Israel, in God. And that's why Rashi stopped short of saying anything else, because he wants to indicate this is not analogous to the previous two instances. What's analogous is yes, they want to contain movement. That is analogous. But what propels this action is not analogous. Yud. And to explain this even better, but at the end of the day, there is still God's commandment, okay, to Moshe, but God's command that he go up on the mountain, the Imkain. Okay, now let's ask another question from a different perspective. All right, they had this whole algorithm of what might be more important than what else. And they felt it was more important for them to show gratitude. And in what they were doing, it was just an indirect obstacle. They didn't have a commandment to facilitate Moshe's death. Okay, (laughs) but Hashem did tell Moshe, go up on this mountain and this day you're going to die. So what were they thinking? So like, in other words, even if it's not, if it, even if it doesn't contravene the letter of the law, but it certainly is not in the spirit 
of what Hashem wants to happen. An explanation is, B'nei Yisrael perushu dezeh gufa. Shetziwe gajbrocha yadei vayidaber Hashem el Moshe dafka ubitosefet nai l'achrei alei alahor. The way B'nei Yisrael understood this was like this, that this whole thing of Hashem saying to Moshe, they should go up on a mountain, it was almost like Hashem was begging them to stop it. First of all, it says, Hashem el Moshe, which didn't have to be, that didn't have to preface that. And then there's an additional clause, go up on this mountain, like Hashem cannot lift Moshe up to heaven from any other location. So they thought this is because And here the Rebbe is citing words from Parshas Kisisa. You might remember that um, Hashem told Moshe, I'm going to kill the Jews and don't even say a word to me about it. And Rashi explained that in saying, don't say a word about it to me, Hashem was saying to Moshe, say something, push back. It's a little bit like when your husband comes home and says, how was your day? And you say, oh my gosh, don't even ask. Hopefully your husband already knows that is an invitation to ask and ask and ask because you have so much you want to tell him in all the details, which is why you said, don't even ask. Okay. So the Jews thought this is the same thing here, that this is their, this is their opportunity. It's like Hashem is kind of saying to them, I'm telling Moshe to go up on the mountain, not you. And he has to go up on the mountain, which means, oh, maybe if he doesn't go up on the mountain, then he won't pass. So they thought it was all Limnoa Aliazu, just to prevent Moshe from going up. It's not only that the party of Moshe will be against their will. Like for instance, with Mohammed Midian, but they felt more so, it's almost like it's up to them to stop it. And Moshe will be forced. You, you couldn't fault Moshe for the Egel because Moshe was upstairs. And here you won't be able to force him because the Jews just are you know, doing this. And in the final aspect of the Sikha, the Rebbe says like this, and on a deeper level, Yesh Lomar, we might say, even though this all happened after Hashem had already very, very specifically made a gezerah that Moshe should pass. But because we're talking about a congregation, Moshe is not a, a private citizen. We have a rule that the Gemara tells us that even after a gezerah is already sealed, but the tshuva of a tzibor can rescind a gezerah. 
וזהו גם הטעם שלא סיים רש"י כל מי שיש בו כוח למחות וכולו. And that's another reason why Rashi didn't end uh, this part of it in the way that he did the first two. דבאמת, because in truth, יש בכוח ישראל למחות כביכול ולבטל גזר הדין של המילה. Because in truth, the Jews could have had the power to stand up against Hashem's gzera here and to stop it. And we find, actually, we have precedent for this. Three times Moshe did this. And if Moshe was able to do this, and Moshe was able to stop Gezerot, Hashem was angry at Aaron and, and at the Bnei Yisrael and so on and so forth, and, Hashem was, and Moshe was able to rescind those decrees, then the Tzibor, the congregation, should have been able to rescind this decree of Hashem being angry at Moshe. And we have an example in the Torah regarding Torah. And that is, the story is recounted in the Gemara about the Tanor Achnai, the oven, the famed oven of Achnai. And there was a very, very big <clears throat> discussion and a controversy and an argument. And in the end, although there was a batkal that said what the answer is, the reply on the part of the Jews was, Lo he. we're going to adjudicate this down here. This is not a heavenly matter. And the Gemara continues the story, that God said about this, my children have been victorious over me. So we can do that. We actually have the power to do that. And Hashem revels in that. So why not in this case? But the reason for this is Yisrael. Why did the Jews not rescind this decree? Nirmas, this is alluded to. Now the Rebbe is going to take us a little bit deep sea diving in the words of the Apostle. That this day, the whole idea that this would be the day of Moshe's passing. This is something that is relevant to the etzem, the essence of the Jews' existence. Because if he would not have passed, and Moshe would have brought B'nai Yisrael into Eretz Yisrael, and the Gemara tells us that anything that Moshe created, anything that Moshe did, is forever, is eternal. It wouldn't have been possible for Bnei Yisrael to go into Golos. And then it wouldn't have been that Hashem would have been able to pour out his wrath on the wood and the stones of the Beit HaMikdash. But God forbid, it would have meant the destruction, the decimation of the Jews. And therefore, Moshe had to pass. Yudbeis. 
And what is our lesson in our Avodah Hashem for each one of us? So the Rebbe says, And this is something that the Rebbe teaches in a lot of sikhons, that each one of us has this aspect of Moshe, our inner Moshe. And a person can get into this mind frame and they can, they can say that because it's the desire of Hashem that I should study Torah and I should do mitzvahs, so why did Hashem create that the Moshe within me, this spectacularly high level of my soul, should be obscured, should be shrouded? You're telling me that there's a Moshe in me, but it's so obfuscated that, practically speaking, all I feel is my nefesh Haman. And so the answer to this complaint is, Okay, this is so poignantly beautiful. The answer is that this is for your own good, because it's only through this struggle, it's only through this paradigm where it's the Nefesh Bahamid that is front and centered, is when you can come to the actual atmos, to the essence. It's specifically when it's a struggle, when it's laborious, when it's work. When a Jew has to work and toil to overcome this Helen Behester, the way in which the Bechinas Moshe Benafsha, the way in which our, our, our Nefesh key is in us, and we have to overcome the way in which this is kind of blocked. And it's not only internal, but it's also and it's also, what do they call it? Surround sound. It's like not only the Nefesh Bahamut inside of us, everything outside of us is echoing the Nefesh Bahamut. And it's only when we have to overcome this that that's when we come to the expression of the actual essence of what a Jew is. And then it's revealed that this whole Helen Behester, this whole way in which God created this world, both the microcosm and the macrocosm, that Hashem is hidden. It is only a preparation to going up higher. That will come, that will come afterwards. And what will come, there will come our personal geula of the Moshe that is within us, and from the personal, individuated geula, 
will come to the Geula HaKlalit, will come to the general redemption of the world entire. The Moshe who goel Rishon, who goel Achron. Moshe was our first and original redeemer, and he will be our final redeemer. May it be Mamish today, now. Before we um, disband, we need to talk schedule. So again, <clears throat> I mean, I think by this time we all know that if it's not Erev Shabbos, it's Erev Yom Tev this month. Um, but we have to do our best with what the calendar gives us. So next week and the week after, Yud Gimel Tishrei, the 19th of September, and Chof Tishrei, the 26th of September, we're going to meet on Sunday at 10 o'clock instead of Monday at 10 o'clock. And I hope at least some people can make it, but I totally understand. Um, and I wish everybody a good year and call to Bateva Hanir Vahanigla. Thank you so much, Gamatem. A good kibenchir for everybody. For local Thank you. Kibenchir. I'm sure you can hear immediately. Amen. Call to everybody. Thank you very much. Easy hachanas. <laughs>